not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness head on. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety a decade ago in my blog Unpickled and in the books that I write. There's two of them so far and more on the way at my website. Just check the show notes and you'll find a link. I tell my stories there and I hold space for your stories here. And today I'm holding space for Jenny Dalton and Jenny just celebrated her one year soberversary. So she's here to tell us her story and look back over what she's learned in the last year. Hi, Jenny. Welcome to the bubble hour. Hi, Jean. Thank you so much for having me. This does feel like a celebration for sure. Oh, what a wonderful way to celebrate. And I know that the podcast is part of your story and a resource, a tool in your toolbox, which is really cool. And I'm looking forward to hearing all about that. So I'm going to just turn it right over to you, Jenny, tell us about yourself and tell us your story. Great. Thanks so much, Jean. Uh, So about me. So I am, I recently turned 50. I just turned 50 in November and I it's not like this is the total definition of who I am, but I consider myself to be a not mom, but I'm a sister and I'm an auntie and I'm a partner, but I I don't have kids. And I feel like in some ways that distinguishes me from a lot of my peers and kind of also in some ways makes me feel like I don't fit in, which is also a big part of my story. I'm also recently a newlywed and I am now happily married in my second marriage to a partner of 10 years And he's got two kids who are in their early 20s, and it's been an interesting process of blending our our new family together. Professionally, I am a writer. I'm a creative person. I uh, have my hands in a lot of different uh, projects. My projects are kind of like my babies, but I'm also a facilitator and a coach. I work in local and regional food systems development. I do a lot of research and facilitation of groups there, mostly nonprofits and government groups. And I also coach women on the cusp of change. Uh, it's a conversation I love having, talking with people about making big changes and leaps in their lives. And I'm also part of a nonprofit organization called Hearthstone Village, where we raise money to support education and nutrition of a community of orphan girls in Haiti. And I just self-published a book that I wrote 20 years ago about being bullied when I was 10, which is also a, a bit of my story as well. I live up in Mendocino County in California. That is about two hours north of San Francisco. And so, of course, it is the land of wine and weed. And it's definitely a challenge to live up here in that capacity. But I have a really creative life and I enjoy, you know, gardening and yoga and fitness and enjoying the great outdoors up here and doing lots of hiking and camping. And I love to cook and my husband and I love to travel. And in general, I feel like I'm really blessed to live a really beautiful Northern California lifestyle. My history, though, is very, very different from my present. I'm, I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana, and, you know, kind of like the northern suburbs. 
And I grew up on the other side of the track, so to speak, from a lot of my friends. It was probably sometimes middle class, sometimes lower middle class. I was the oldest of four kids. And, you know, I mean, my parents were young and they were, um, you know, my dad was a blue collar worker and my mom was a homemaker. And, you know, I think we just grew up with your basic financial struggles of living in a, a small house with four kids and a lot going on. I was really grateful that I grew up in a family of readers. And so there were, we were always reading. And I am very, very grateful for that because I feel like it's a huge part of my life um, and also inspired me to write and journal. Um, we were not religious at all. And so in some ways, I feel like a little unmoored at times. I was always seeking something in the more spiritual realm. And my parents were, I would say, escapees from kind of more extreme religious backgrounds. And so they really raised us with this philosophy of like, it's your world, you go explore it. We're not going to put any rules on you or any boundaries necessarily. We're busy doing our lives and taking care of things. And as the oldest, you know, I definitely felt a sense of like, okay, I'm kind of on my own, you know. I was a bit of a tomboy and I, you know, just kind of embraced the sort of like strength and kind of grittiness of of my reality, I guess, you know, climbing trees and trying to skateboard and riding bikes and being really active. And then, you know, on the other side of the world inside my house, my dad was a drinker and he, you know, was a young dad. And, and my guess is that he fought, probably felt a lot of pressure raising four kids and being in his 20s, 30s. He probably just wanted to have fun because I know that when I was in my 20s and 30s, that was definitely a priority. You know, he came home drunk a lot. He was always kind of in and out of working for himself or working for someone else. And I think that put a lot of pressure. There was no like real consistency around like, is money coming in this month? Is it not? My mom didn't drink and she, you know, I feel like she just really kind of held things together we didn't have alcohol in the house, but my dad would often come home, you know, like I said, drunk and, and just whether it was he was boisterous or my parents were fighting about money, et cetera, his drinking over time just definitely became, you know, a point of, of contention or just kind of created a lot of you know, tension in the house. He was also just really, you know, fun loving. And, you know, I don't know, like looking back, what I consider him to be an alcoholic, like in some ways he could maybe be defined that way, but it's not like he was hiding bottles in closets or anything like that. He just would go meet up with his buddies after work and have a lot of drinks and then come home. And sometimes he'd like get in a fight with somebody. Sometimes, you know, he, it was just his, the way he was. And, I didn't like it, but I, it was nothing. There was nothing I could really do about it. He gave me my first beer when I was four. My brother was three, and I think it was one of those moments where we're like, "What is that? Can we have some?" And he was probably just being, you know, gregarious and trying to be fun-loving. He was like, "Here, have one." And you know, I just remember that really vividly being like this, like opportunity to do something that the grown-ups were doing, but at the same time, getting really sick. Also, when I was growing up, when we'd have holiday parties, I remember going to my aunt and uncle's house and being really drawn to the bourbon balls. <laughs> I just would go in there and just, I would stand by the bourbon balls and like surreptitiously like eat them, eat a lot of them. 
you know, also during this time, I would say probably grade school years, um, I was bullied in fifth grade. And, you know, I began to feel very much like I'm not enough, you know, and it, it started to seed a lot of insecurities, a lot of feeling like I don't belong and created, you know, a deep wound in my heart. So in some ways, not only did I feel a little bit distant from my dad, who wasn't around very much. I also had this kind of pit in my heart from this experience of being bullied by girls that I thought were my friends. In junior high, I, I drank a little bit here and there with my brother. You know, we had our peppermint schnapps that we'd drink behind the, the school. And I remember having like my first hangover and just, just being miserable and laying out in the sun in the backyard. And my mom and dad just kind of looking at us and like shaking our heads like, well, that's what you get. In high school, I had a fake ID and I had two of them. At one point, it's a whole story of like going to Chicago and getting a fake ID and getting in trouble for it and stuff. But it's it having this ID allowed me to go to the bars in the neighborhood where I lived. I lived in kind of like a college townish part of Indianapolis, and there were a lot of great bands that came through and I worked at restaurants and hung out with older people and we'd go to the bars after work and, you know, I'd be 16, 17, you know, partying with 20 something year olds and dancing and having fun. I was also in a high school sorority and I went to, you know, a pretty big public high school that had like, you know, the star basketball teams and just a lot of parties, a lot of parties in high school. And it was just kind of like what you did. When I think back, you know, Indianapolis, it's to me seems like a party town, you know, kind of like a northern New Orleans in some ways. We have a lot of music. There's a lot of sports. There's a lot of culture. And, you know, people like to like to party there. And it just becomes, you know, something that is ingrained in the way we're all grown. You know, we all are raised like, oh, we can handle it. We go to keggers. We we play cards. We listen to music. And when I got to college, I went to Indiana University in Bloomington, which is just, you know, a big 10 school. It's got lots of fraternities. I wasn't in a sorority or anything because I did that in high school. But, you know, it was just definitely a part of life there. I remember going to my first big football game and just getting wasted on tequila and you know, just having, you know, all your friends are like, ah, you know, this is, you're good. You can do this, you know, just have some more. And it's just, there's just this culture. And I know that there is another culture that exists, but I just didn't have access to it. You know, I still felt like I was like a smart kid who, you know, enjoyed studying. I enjoyed sports. I enjoyed being, you know, academically you know, proficient and getting good grades and all that kind of stuff. But I was also this partier. And I knew that there were kids that just didn't. But to me, it, it wasn't even, there was like really no choice in some ways. I didn't necessarily like drinking, but I did it because everybody else was doing it. And you know, I felt like if I didn't, then again, I would, I would still be not fitting in. I wouldn't be able to be a part of the in crowd or, you know, be able to have as much fun as everybody else was having. Like fear of FOMO, fear of missing out for me has been this like major theme throughout my teen years and my twenties and thirties. It was just 
constantly, you know, calling out to me like, well, if you're not here, you're not, you're not like, what kind of life are you living? It's just what people do. And in the meantime, you know, on the other side of that, I'm also just out there as a seeker, you know, looking for deeper meaning. My friends always called me Thoreau because I was the one that was, you know, looking at things from a deeper place. I definitely had more of an interest in spirituality and kind of the larger meaning of life and philosophy, et cetera, than my friends did. And so I felt separate, like they were out there and who knows what was going on in their heads. Obviously they have their own ideas, but I was like doing a lot of reading and a lot of introspection and a lot of journaling at this time. And, you know, really thinking more deeply about who I was in the world and, and having this kind of inner tension around the partying. This was in college and feeling like there was some kind of disconnect and some two halves of myself that I, I had to figure out how to put together. You know, it was just this kind of lingering, deep feeling. Uh, when I, I graduated from college, I moved to the Bay Area, and I began my career working in food publishing. I also worked in politics and political consulting for a while, and I worked in the advertising industry. And you know, all of these places, alcohol is definitely a part of the way we we did things. So we'd have lots of booze at lunches meeting with clients at bars, lots of dinners at fancy restaurants and drinks. And, you know, I felt in so many ways, like I was living, you know, this dream life of, you know, getting access to all of these great places that my job was paying for me to be at and learning about wines and learning about cocktails and learning about great chefs and hobnobbing, I guess, so to speak, with some, you know, kind of important people and people who were, you know, fund doing, doing, having big fundraisers. And, you know, it's just drinking was definitely this thing that I did to, to fit in and be a part of that world. And especially like in advertising, it's just kind of, you know, part of the culture there. But in the other side of things, I was also practicing yoga since I was 22. And it was really diving into, you know, Zen and Taoism and Buddhism and all of the practices around yoga and trying to find this question of balance for me, like, should I or shouldn't I, right? But it's, it was this this thing that I just did, like I could hold my own. I was seen as someone who, you know, was, was capable of being at the table drinking with politicians and chatting about things. And then you know, yoga was a place where I'd go to like clear it all out and, and have some space to myself. During this time, I was also attracted to Al-Anon meetings and I would go and just was exploring the ways in which my dad's drinking impacted my life. And I also started working on my book and started taking a lot of the journaling that I'd been doing and, and weaving it into a story that over the course of 10 years became, you know, some healing for myself around it. I was, you know, living in San Francisco and, you know, living this kind of life and in the interim also weaving in uh, in, in and out of not being in San Francisco. Like I lived in Tahoe for a while and I worked in restaurants. And of course, working in the restaurant industry is another, like just a place where people party 50 cent drinks and, you know, dollar cocktails and, and whatever, and hanging out with the, the, 
the waiter and chef crowd. It was just a lot of partying, people drinking on the slopes. And, you know, I was just up there for, for a season, but it was definitely one of these things where I'm like, this this is just starting to feel like it's a little bit too much, but I didn't know how to like extricate myself from it. Uh, when I moved back to San Francisco, I hung out with some friends and met my future first husband. And he was a very bubbly, gregarious guy who was an actor and is an actor and, and was really deep into the sketch comedy scene and also was the MC for a, a group of, of go-go dancers. So he was kind of into the burlesque scene. And so I entered these worlds of comedy and burlesque and the nightlife, you know, and, and being with someone who really loved to like go hear music a lot. And so we were always at bars and we were always at clubs and we were always, we hung out a lot with his friends that were in his comedy troupe who were drinking was just part of how they made their creative, their creative babies, you know, all of their sketches were born in, in alcohol in some ways and just partying and trying to get the ideas flowing. And meanwhile, you know, I'm also working on my book and I'm writing poetry and I'm studying with, um, Diane de Prima, who was a, a very you know famous poet. And I am exploring this relationship between alcohol and creativity and to what extent, you know, do we need alcohol to fuel our imagination? And of course, there's just so many stories out there about writers who use alcohol or are famous alcoholic writers. And, you know, I, there was parts that just felt so uncomfortable to me. And yet there were facets where I could see how the creativity w was arising from it. And it was working for my husband. It was working in the advertising agencies I was working at. You know, it was this reality. But at the same time, it from my spiritual side, it just I felt like it didn't have to be that way. But I didn't have a lot of examples of, you know, people who were writers who weren't. I mean, although, of course, there are loads. But I, I just continued to dive into different philosophies and, and just trying to find different ways of thinking that again, started to make me feel like I was different from everybody else. I wasn't, I was thinking in different ways than they were, and then it would make me feel alone and I would drink more to fit in. <laughs> so it, again, it's just the addictive nature of alcohol. I went to a couple of AA meetings during this time too, and, and was like, is this for me? Like, am I an alcoholic? Because I couldn't, figure out how to stop, even though there was a, this, you know, like I said, like this deep part of myself that just felt like it wasn't where I need the direction I needed to be going in, but it was also so deeply a part of the culture that I lived in. And I was married for seven years where it was, you know, a lot of introspection and exploring of like, how do I want to live my life? And, you know, is this nightlife scene really what I want. I mean, in some ways, I just wanted to be married to someone who would sit on the couch with me and watch TV and just snuggle or read. And it's not that he never did that, but I, I just didn't feel like I fit into being in a relationship with someone who wanted to be in the nightlife scene. And he had a vision of like wanting to own a bar. And I, you know, I was just like, oh, is this the direction things are going in? I just, it didn't feel great. And for other reasons too, that are just not related to the story, we ended up getting divorced when I was 39. 
And at that time, like so many women in San Francisco, I did my yoga teacher training and um, to deepen my practice. And my yoga teacher at the time, as well as a woman who was in my yoga training, were both people who had been, you know, a part of kind of like this punk rock scene in San Francisco and in LA. And they were like my inspiration. They were completely sober. And I'm like, how do you do that? I'm like, they were like a mystery to me. I'm like, so you stopped drinking and you're not just using yoga to, (laughs) to, you know, cleanse your system, but you're just, you're literally not drinking at all. How do you do that? Like, I, it was just this, it, it definitely, you know, it felt like this mystery to me. And at the same time, the more yoga I did, the more I got tired of having hangovers because I felt connected to this energy that was building inside of me that felt so good and strong and pure. And I wanted more clarity around those times when I was off the mat and not just using my time on the mat to get clear. I eventually moved up to Mendocino County where I live now and just seeking a little bit more of a a less urban life and something a little bit more closer to nature. And I, I started leading these, you know, women in these 30 and 90 days of clarity, I called them. And they were opportunities for women to work in groups together where we would take time off from drinking together. And so we were fasting together. We'd talk on the phone once a week and we'd talk about how it's going. And I remember this one woman when we did our 90 day one, and she was like, how am I going to hang out with my family? and not drink. And I'm like, Oh, right. Yeah. Family and not drinking. Like that is a challenge. Luckily I don't have to go deal with my family right now because we all really like to drink together. That first 90 days that I did where I didn't drink, it was like the longest that I had gone without drinking, like on a daily basis for, you know, 20 plus years because I literally had been drinking every day. Like it was for dinners, it was for going out, then there were parties, et cetera. It just, it started to dawn on me that the extent to which I'd been drinking. And also there were many times when I drank just to fall asleep because I was scared of being alone in my house or just, I didn't have, you know, it was almost like, again, there was a struggle between being comfortable being by myself and not being comfortable being by myself and using alcohol as a, as a companion in some ways as well. Like, you know, re- watching TV and next thing you know, two glasses turns into drinking the bottle and, you know, I'm just so hung over the next day. I, I was working with some folks and other women to just engage in these like 30 and 90 days off and, and they became good practice for me. And I met a couple of women up here who had made it a goal to like take a year off from drinking. And I'm like, I really want to do that. And I, and I thought, you know what, it'd be really great to do it before I turned 50. And I, I kept thinking, you know, this in the back of my mind. And meanwhile, you know, just enjoying life and, and still drinking. And, but I would call myself very sober curious at this time. And you know, really inspired by and watching these women in my life who were taking a year off and like, what were they doing? What were they bringing to parties? How do you, how do you do this? How do you show up at a music festival and, and not drink? Like, what does that look like? And 
I became, again, just really curious about like, what is it like on the other side here from, you know, your fun, loving life as someone who's, you know, living in the wine country and engaged in all these, you know, the facts and and figures around wines and why they're so cool and how to make a good cocktail, et cetera. And went to AA again. And I really love AA for the stories that we tell. And and I, you know, I enjoyed reading the book and, but I never felt connected enough to want to get a sponsor because I never felt like I was an alcoholic. I just felt like I was someone who drank, you know, two to four glasses of wine a night, (laughs) but it wasn't a problem because it hadn't impacted my life in that I hadn't lost you know, my career, I hadn't lost friendships or a husband over it or family members. It just was something that was making me tired and making me think, you know, that it wasn't in alignment with my spiritual self. And I was, you know, just struggling to to get that balance and that alignment. And during this time, my dad got sick and I remember going home to Indianapolis and hanging out with my siblings while my dad was dying. And we were just drinking every night. And just because it's something that we did when we were together, we were always, who's got the wine, bring in the wine, you know, family vacations. And, you know, there's four of us. And it was just a way for us all to connect and unwind. And after he died, I remember coming home and just being like, I just I feel like I need to feel this, you know, like honor him by, by feeling my grief. And I I remember taking, you know, maybe like a month off at that point. And, you know, I'd gotten used to like, you know, doing a month cleanse here, a month cleanse there, never really doing the 90 days again after doing it a couple of times. But I started really diving into Quitlet and, you know, reading lots of books and, thank God for podcasts and and the bubble hour was such a huge, huge help. I devoured probably every single episode. I remember actually even sitting at my parents' house in Indianapolis and, and getting on the unpickled and reading Jean's story of like, okay, so how did she just start? Even though I'd started before, but it's like, well, how do you just start stopping like, and just being done? And, you know, reading her first few days and then listening to everyone's stories and and getting that you don't have to have a rock bottom, that it was enough to just want to not drink. And that, and that's all you needed. And you didn't have to say you were an alcoholic. You didn't have to, you know, it was enough that I felt like it was too much. And I remember listening to a story of one of the guests on the bubble hour who was telling the story of quitting and how she just went and sat on her porch and just felt her feelings. And I'm like, yes, like, this is what I want. I just want to honor my life as a human being on this planet and give myself the opportunity to feel all the feelings and not try to cover them up or hide them or, you know, cover up the pain, the discomfort, the everything, and just be strong and allow them in and allow them to pass because I know that they, they're just like a wave and that, you know, our feelings are just energy. We just need to let them out. I mean, all my yoga training and all my reading that I'd done with all, you know, the philosophies and the, um, the religions. And, you know, it's just like, I knew that all of this passes and then just to be is, is good enough and that we can just, you know, 
enjoy that part of being human. And so I just, I just wanted to feel it. And, you know, I started devouring other podcasts. Like I really loved Unruffled and how they talk about um, using creativity in sobriety, which was really helpful to me because I definitely had been doing that and just writing and cooking and and also napping. <laughs> and I really enjoyed reading This Naked Mind. And for me, that was, it was sort of what I needed, this, this understanding of how alcohol is so pervasive and just her, the stories of like how, you know, you go into a bar and it's like the shrine to alcohol. It's like, why do we do this? Why are we you know, enshrining this poison and, you know, began to look at it as a poison and the conversations around it as poison. And, you know, I didn't quit all the way at this point because I still didn't quite understand how to extract it from my life. But I remember taking a sober summer and we often go up to Lake Tahoe for like a couple weeks in the summer. And I just remember thinking, okay, I'm going to go to the lake and I'm not going to have, you know, a wine cooler with me. You know, I'm going to have a vacation or I'm going to go home to Indianapolis and I'm going to not drink, like just having these little tests of like, okay, I'm going to have this week and I'm not going to do it in this challenging environment. I remember I did a sober New Year's Eve and I've actually done several sober New Year's Eves and then found those would be the best. And just having these like these fasting these fasting challenges were really, really helpful to me at least rather than like quitting cold Turkey. I was just like, I needed to prove to myself that I could, you know, hang out with my family for two weeks and not drink and just devour the iced teas and drink lots of sparkling waters. And, but I still had it in my mind that I wanted to do a year before I turned 50 and the 50 was looming. I mean, like I said, I just turned 50 in November and I celebrated one year on March 15th, which brings us to, you know, I guess the pandemic. And, but I actually, I want to back up just for a second. And I remember too, that I was we had taken off my my now husband and I had taken off some time to go live in Mexico for a while and and we often are out of the country and traveling and of course like that's a whole other challenge is like you know and wanting to drink wine in Italy and you know having you know margaritas or whatever when you're in Mexico and we were living in San Cristobal de las Casas and we were there for 4 months and my gut just started backfiring on me in lots of different ways. And I felt really ill. And we had been drinking a lot of wine there and a lot of mezcal and a lot of tequila. And I, when we got back, I remember thinking like, you know what, I think alcohol has a lot to do with this. And if I just stop drinking, I will, you know, hopefully heal my gut. And so, you know, again, it's just this, this, these stages of fasting where I would take, you know, all right, I'll take three months off and see how that feels. Or I'll take, you know, a couple I don't think it was three months at that time. I think I took off like a month. I'll take off a month and see how it feels. But then every time I'd have that, like that drink, like after I'd taken the time off, I always hated it. So I was like, why am I drinking this? This tastes terrible. You know, usually it'd be like, I start with like a nice light glass of white wine and it just would taste terrible. Essentially when the pandemic hit, I was in New Orleans for a conference for work and 
you know, I love New Orleans. I've been there so many times and I definitely had not done the the challenge of being in New Orleans sober yet. <laughs> and so, you know, I was, I'd had some glasses of wine and, you know, it's still in the back of my mind, like, okay, you're going to be 50 in November. Like, when are you taking off this time from drinking? And, you know, we're in the conference and they stand up and say, you know, the CDC needs us to be six feet apart and we're going to be canceling this conference right now. And a lot of us were like, okay, like, what is this new reality that we're moving into? And I have a friend that lives there and she was one of the conference um, organizers. And she's like, let's all come over to my house and we'll eat some crawfish and we'll drink some beer and we'll just kind of process all this. And I remember, you know, going over to her house and having like a tequila shot with everybody and just processing the fact that we're moving into a new reality. And the next day we had plans to go have brunch with some folks that are colleagues and we were sitting in this super busy bar and I look at the cocktail menu and I'm like, all right, I'm going to have my last cocktail. And I remember drinking like an elderberry champagne spritzer and just saying, this is it. This is it. This is it. This is the last one. I'm taking that year off. And that was it. You know, I, I, I took my last drink. I realized that, especially during the pandemic, that I wanted to be in my best mental and physical health shape. I, you know, already had a summer of practice and being isolated and all these, you know, that stuff was really helpful. My partner and I got married in September, just the two of us had a two person wedding. And so it was very easy not to feel like I needed to celebrate and drink. We did a road trip honeymoon, just the two of us. And I didn't feel the need to have any alcohol then. And I had my 50th birthday in November, no alcohol, didn't need it. Went to Hawaii actually in January and I didn't drink there. And it was really refreshing. And I had this moment of epiphany on the beach where, you know, at that point I hadn't had a drink in maybe 10 months. And I was like, it was, it's all been a lie. You know, all of these ideas of needing it to fit in and needing it to be fun or creative or whatever were all a lie. And I felt such a sense of deep satisfaction in knowing that I just really like who I am when I'm not drinking and that I like feeling all my feelings. You know, my mom was with us for the entire winter and, you know, my mom and my husband would, you know, have cocktails like every night and I would just watch them and I'd be like, not in the least bit inspired to drink because my mental health and my, my physical health are just so much more important. And And something too is that this whole conversation of like, should I or shouldn't I is not there anymore. And that was another thing, another uh, one of the guests on the bubble hour had said, like, I'm just tired of this conversation. And I wanted that too. I wanted the conversation to be gone. And it is. and, And that feels really amazing. But over the last year, I've, you know, I've definitely gotten a lot of support. I began first with working for six weeks with a coach, I mean, a a therapist that I'd worked with in the past and just worked with him and, and shared my story of drinking like they do on the bubble hour. And that really helped get some clarity on like, on creating a new path forward. I've been working with a coach 
for being 10 months or so. And that's been really wonderful. Just knowing that I needed support to get through the first year. One of the things that she said to me like last week, she's like, well, what's your new commitment? Cause she's like, it's really hard to make a commitment forever. It's good to just take little steps. And I'm like, yeah, that feels right to me, especially because of my fasting history. But I'm like, I'm totally committed to this path because I feel so much better. And I am, you know, committing to staying alcohol-free through menopause. And because I feel like it's the next big chapter in my life. And, you know, I want to be really present for it. I've also been uh, involved in a group of creative women called The Collective. And just having a group of women who are supporting creative work that I'm doing in my life has been really helpful and has given me, you know, I just have so much more energy to work on creative things. And so it's been nice to have a space to go to uh, report on that and to have um, support. And I'm become a huge tea drinker. I just, you know, I drink tea every night after dinner. I should own stock in La Croix. And I became really interested in a lot of all the the non-alcoholic cocktail brands and things that are out there. For example, I just really love Seedlip and, and just like these beautiful, like herbaceous cocktails that I can make that, you know, I don't even at the beginning, I think I was relying on them a lot. Like, Oh, it's Friday cocktail hour. Let's, let's, um, I'll mix my non-alcoholic cocktails. You guys do yours. And, you know, I got to feel like I was a part of something, but at the same time, I, I just don't feel like I need them anymore, but they were a huge help at the beginning. And of course, you know, it was helpful to be in a pandemic. I mean, one of the things that my coach said to me, just yesterday, actually, she's like, I'm like, what's it like in year two? <laughs> what, should, what should I expect? And she's like, I felt like in year one, I was hibernating and hiding away. And that year two was all about really getting clarity on my boundaries around social situations. And, um, you know, what am I saying yes to? Who am I saying yes to? And obviously, the pandemic and being um, isolated in some ways, you know, even though we have had like family here and a lot of obligations, um, it's been a lot easier because social life isn't there and I don't have to be tempted by going to parties and concerts and all of that kind of stuff. I, I do feel that year two will be this journey into what am I a yes to, but I feel so much stronger in knowing that I am a yes to no alcohol (laughs) and that it's not it's not just a fast anymore. It's, it's my, my favorite way to live. And I've had 30 plus years. And when I think about that, it blows my mind. If I think I've been drinking since I was like 14 and I'm not great at math, but like 30 plus years of drinking. And it feels like almost every day. I I, I don't, I couldn't tell you a time when I wasn't. And Now I really want to engage with what's on the other side of that, you know, being more present in my life, being more present to my energies and knowing like when, like, I want to just take a nap and when I want to hide away and feelings of not fitting in and things like that are still there, but they're always healing and always alchemizing and evolving. I dug my book project that I wrote in my twenties out of hiding over this pandemic experience. And because my husband was like, you wrote a book, right? Like, what is that all about? And I shared it with him. And he's said, this is really good. You should share it around. And I decided to self-publish during the pandemic, which has been this 
thing to kind of keep me occupied and it's been really great and getting lots of really great feedback on it. And it's brought me some new directions in life, meaning I am now um, going to be um, doing you know assemblies for girls and engaging in the conversation around girl bullying a lot more. And I just feel, I feel like, you know, that initial wound inside of me has shifted in so many ways, but getting alcohol out of the way was such a huge part of it because I'm just so much more aware of that. I don't have a need to, to cover up the wound anymore, I guess, because I'm not hiding it. I put it out there and I'm just allowing it to be in the world and not try to cover it up with something. Yeah, I just feel a lot more freedom, uh, freedom to be myself. And, and that's really what um, is the gist of it, I guess. I'm diving more into my spiritual path and whatever that looks like, I don't know. But just keeping focus on fitness and, and just feeling my feelings. It's my plan. <laughs> That's a good plan. I like that plan. Well, thanks, Jenny. I feel like I've been in your head for the last day because I was reading your book last night and this morning and really enjoying it. It is interesting to hear you tell your story from today's perspective, having read a book that you wrote earlier on, looking back at, at your younger years, a fictionalization of your younger years. It's really neat to see the whole picture. I'm curious, as you did dig out that book project, which by the way, is called Of Butterflies and Bullies. Uh, and I so enjoyed reading it because uh, I'm a, just a couple years older than you, but you referenced a lot of things from my childhood era, the late 70s, early 80s, that sort of coming of age when you start to care about clothes or you start to notice what other people are wearing and realize that, oh, mine aren't quite right. And you you talked about trying to talk the way that Laura Ingalls talked because she was so bubbly and positive. <laughs> oh man, I just remember doing so many of those things. It was really a, a fun read, even though you were writing about some, some heavy heartfelt stuff. I'm curious about, as you pulled that out and edited work that you wrote in your 20s about your younger years, tell me how it felt to edit that then 20 years or 20 30 years after you wrote it, did you find that, oh, you, you saw things differently? Do, do you have more depth from even a further perspective now as you worked on that project? How did you see yourself changing as you worked on that? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think the biggest piece is that the pain and reading, like when I was writing that, I felt like there was, there were no stories out there that were about the raw feelings of the hurt that you have when your friends hurt you. And it really had me reflect on how much I've grown, obviously, and, and how much that, that pain is something that has defined so many of my friendships moving forward and so many of the ways that I interact with the world but that I've evolved and I've become stronger. And, you know, so much of it is because I've just come to like myself so much more. And as I've taken steps again and again and again to just try to reconcile my actions with the inner strength that I know was always there. Like, I feel like in so many ways, like my drinking 
and the inability to stop was just a way of punishing myself over and over again for, you know, what, I don't know, not being liked, like, okay, I'll just not like myself some more, you know? And I've, I've been transcending that in the last year and it's been feeling really good and really strengthening. I'm curious if you feel that those girls that bullied you will see themselves in this project, recognize themselves in it. And how do you feel about that? Is that revenge or empowerment or what does that look like? Well, I think, you know, I, I definitely based a lot of the girls on real people, but if there are, there are a compilation of a lot of different people. Um, I have a lot of friends from that time still, and many of them have read my book and they're like, well, tell me who's, who, who's so-and-so. And I'm like, I'm not telling you anything, <laughs> you know, it's not, there's not a, a, a revenge, you know, in mind here. It's more just like, you know, this is my story. And, and they obviously had lots of things going on in their lives to have them behave the way that they did. And I even, um, tried to confront one of them when I was in college. And I was like, this happened. And like, don't you remember? And, you know, it really hurt me. And she's like, I really don't know what you're talking about. And so I started to understand that other people have different lives. You know, they have their own inner workings. The same way I learned that my parents were doing the very best that they could when they were in their 20s and 30s raising kids. You know, but I didn't understand that until I was in my 20s and 30s and looked back and was like, oh, gosh, they had kids? Like, I don't think I could have kids right now. How did you do that? So I, I, there's a lot of forgiveness on this side of the story. Mm. I get the feeling that you are pretty sensitive and intuitive. And I feel like kids that are really intelligent and perceptive can feel affected differently because they pick up on slights and they pick up on those looks between other people. Do you ever, or have you ever wished you weren't smart and perceptive? Do you ever envy those people that go through life without a care because everything goes over their head? Yeah. I mean, how do you live like that? I, it's been a huge question of my, in my life. Like I have wished for that so many times, but it's just not who I am and I can't change it. And I think, again, it's like the drinking was a way of, you know, of trying to fit in and be like, like those people. For me, everything is sensitive and everything. Um, and that's a part of it too. Like I would drink to not feel these sensitive feelings at night, you know, just to fall asleep. And I, I, I don't know. I think as I've gotten to know myself better and to feel more comfortable inside my own skin, everything has just become so much more easy. Mm -hmm. I can relate like drinking to fall asleep and just to shut off the voices. I don't know if that comes from being a creative writerly type as well, where everything that you think has to be put into words and the brain just keeps working on it. Absolutely. <laughs> I feel like it got even worse after social media came along because I would catch myself composing Facebook status updates throughout the day, like narrating my day to myself as like, oh, I'm going to put this on Facebook. And uh, <laughs> back, you know, when it was new and it, <laughs> it was like a new place to write about things. Yeah, absolutely. I know. I remember having a boyfriend at one point and when I was, you know, I used to do morning pages and I would write and journal everything. And he's like, can't you just live? Why are you, do you have to record everything that's going on? And I just didn't, even, I'd never even thought of it that perspective before. 
And so, you know, now I definitely take social media breaks and, you know, I don't read the news. And You, know. you might have heard me say this on this show before, but I do morning pages and shred them. And that is a very fascinating process because I've always written and spoke with, even when I'm writing in my journal, you know, thinking someone's going to read this someday, I have to make this coherent and shape this story. But to write morning pages and then shred them is to really brain dump. And you can imagine that's a completely different experience. That sounds fun. I think I'd like that. I have burned you know, I, I used to carry and like move around a stack of like 20 journals with me everywhere I went. And I, I've burned about half of them at this point, just releasing those old stories into the fire. And yeah. cause again, you know, we have to allow ourselves the space to recreate. And when we're carrying all those ideas and thoughts and just the pressure of it all, it's just, it's too much. Let's talk a little bit about relationships and how being alcohol-free has, has freed you up to be authentic in your relationships. How are things with your mom, with your family of origin? Did, did those relationships deepen or shift at all as you got sober? Um, I feel like, you know, definitely with my mom. I mean, we spent the whole winter together and parts of the summer because um, it was my goal to just, you know, take care of her during this really trying time that we're all experiencing. There's just, again, I think it's, it's forgiveness. You know, she was, you know, like, like, Oh, Jenny, don't look at me like that. When she's, you know, pouring her two fingers of whiskey every night, you know, and I'm like, mom, you do what makes you happy. Like, if that's going to work for you, go for it. I just, I, I have been the person in my sibling's life going around telling them not to smoke. And I know that that gets me nowhere. So, just having a lot of space around allowing them to do what they need to do is, is really my husband the same way. It's like, he, he wants his glass of wine and he can only do like one anymore. And so he's just like, it's one, I'm one and done. I just want my one. I'm like, great. Enjoy yourself. You know, I, I don't, I'm not judging them. And maybe before I was feeling like I needed them to come along for the ride and join me. Now I just feel like I'm doing this for me. And and it just makes me feel good. And, you know, if you want me to make you a cup of tea too, I'm happy to also make you a cup of tea. <laughs> yeah. So there's just, there's a lot more forgiveness and my friends, some of them, it's taken them a while to be a little bit more accepting. And of course, you know, I haven't had as many friend experiences in the last year, so it's made it a little easy, but, um, the friends that I have seen, um, you know, just like, Oh, you're still not drinking. I'm like, no, I'm still not drinking. I said, I think I'm done, you know, and they've been really understanding. And this past new year's Eve is probably one of the best I've ever had. We just had a couple come over and we had a bonfire and we just sat out and I just felt so much more present. So I was just laughed more than I've ever laughed. And I just feel like I can just be with people so much more because I'm not in my head fighting about whether or not I should or shouldn't be drinking as much or managing my buzz or trying to stay, you know, awake or, Oh, feeling bad that I missed out on what they had just said. Like, I know I'm just there a hundred percent and mm. I love it. I love that too. You talked about working with a coach. Can you talk a little about how that has worked for you? What is that process and why did you choose it? And what are some of the things that happens when you work with a coach? 
Sure. So I knew, you know, I, I work as a coach too. So I know how it's important to have, you know, support structure and like a cheerleader and someone to hold your commitment with you. And, you know, I, in my mind have tried to stop drinking so many times and I'd never achieved it on my own. And I was just like, I I'm going to need help to get to that year mark. And I just, in my mind thought, okay, if I can make it to a year, I can definitely do another year, you know, and then I can definitely do another year after that, but I just need to get to that year. And, you know, obviously you talk a lot about She Recovers and I've been really inspired by the community. And I went on the She Recovers website and I, you know, found a whole list of tons of great, you know, women. And I just read everyone's descriptions and I chose uh, three women that I wanted to just kind of talk with and find out what their philosophy was around coaching, what their own experience was around drinking. I felt like for me, it was important to work with someone who also, um, you know, didn't feel like they were, uh, necessarily like, you know, an alcoholic who had lost everything. You know, I wanted to work with someone who just also felt like drinking just was no longer for them. And then, you know, had a similar perspective, I guess. And someone who also just felt like I could, I could relate with. And the coach that I chose is, you know, she, to me, she feels like she's got kind of a bit of a Midwestern attitude, which, you know, I still very much identify as a Midwestern girl. And, you know, she comes from a bit of a similar background, I think. And, you know, we just, at the beginning, we were talking once a week, I think. And just, she's been so helpful to give me lots of different perspectives on self-care and, and just using this opportunity to, to just give myself some space to heal. And I think that's been just the biggest part is just like her permission, you know, and, you know, she's giving me my own permission, but, you know, just giving me this, the voice that I need to hear saying, yeah, it's okay, you know, to feel, um, you know, really sad about, you know, the life that you had, that you're moving into something new, you're emerging into this new self. And, um, you know, she sent me a cute little care package with, you know, like some gum and lotion and I don't know, just like ways to, to nurture ourselves. She's been really great at helping me with that and, um, and to slow down and not take everything so seriously, I guess, but maintain my commitment. I don't know. She's just a beautiful human and I'm really grateful to work with her. And now we are talking a little bit more like once a month, but I see myself working with her for a while longer just because I really enjoy the relationship and the support. That's fantastic. You use the pandemic as part of your reason or your nudge to quit. For many, the pandemic has been a time of increased drinking or even relapse for people in recovery. So what do you say to someone who's listening and has had a really tough last 12 months and is exhausted and ready to make a change today? Yeah, I mean, it's been, we've all been experiencing a collective trauma together and it's been really hard and it's okay that the relapse happened. Again, that's something that I really appreciate about the She Recovers community. It's like, like, don't blame yourself, you know, for the behaviors that aren't working, you know, but there's always an opportunity to start fresh. And for me, so much of it was just about getting past the first 10 days. Like if I can get 10 days in, 
you know, just commit to 10 days. And then the next thing you know, you're just like not interested at all. (laughs) I don't know, but just we deserve to live the life that we want to live. And if you're feeling the tug of sobriety calling to you, then you deserve to step into it. There are lots of people here to support you along the way. Uh, Jenny, thank you so much for being here. Before you go, how can our listeners find you and get your book and learn more about the things that you're doing? Well, thanks. Um, Well, my book is available at butterfliesbullies.com and you can read a lot more about that. I'm, um, you know, just posting lots of things there. And then um, I'm also starting a group for women who want to talk about being bullied, grown women who are still working on that. And so the information about that is on there as well. And you can follow me if you want on Instagram, Dalton underscore Jen. I'm always posting things about sobriety and just being grateful for the everyday little things. And, um, and then my coaching is at um, loveinactioncoaching.com. All right. Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. All of these links are in the show notes. So just scroll down on your screen and click on those links. I thank you very much, Jenny, for being here. And listeners, I thank you for listening. And that's all for this week, everyone. Thank you so much. And until next time, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. In a dark corner is where shame likes to hide. We think you're strong just cause you keep it on the side. It just stays in wait there. Rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can shine When you see the old I did that Not proud but that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Just want to be free.